Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. And let's pray. Father, thank you for a chance to open the Word of God together this morning. We pray for your Spirit's enablement as we begin our study of Matthew chapter 23. Father, may you really humble our hearts and, and help us to, uh, to come to grips with the truth that you have here for us. Father, may we have a softened hearts that as your spirit applies in this truth to our lives that we would be receptive vessels to hear and to heed the word of God. We pray, Father, even now in this time together, Father, I ask for your enablement to make clear the text. You grant me your spirit's enablement. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, we introduced Matthew chapter 23 with a sort of an overview. And as we uh, looked at this chapter, it stands out in uh, Gospels. In fact, it stands out in the New Testament as uh, a very unusual kind of chapter. Unusual because it contains such harsh language. When we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, we think often of that one who was meek and mild, who... A a smoldering uh, wick he would not extinguish. And yet here in Matthew chapter 23, we encounter Christ in the role of an Old Testament prophet speaking words of judgment. Words even, I might say, of anger. Language that is harsh and difficult to hear. And we are quite surprised by what we encounter here. But Jesus used this language, he addressed the religious leadership of the nation of Israel in such harsh terms as we learned last week because he needed to bring the nation of Israel to a place of choosing. This was the final opportunity for the people. In fact, you see here in verse 1 of chapter 23, when Jesus spoke, he is speaking about the scribes and the Pharisees, but he spoke to the crowds and the disciples. And the reason he did this is because the nation itself had imbibed and embraced the religion that their leadership had taught them. And so he was calling them, the nation, the common people, to choose. Well, they choose that with which they had known, that with which they had become familiar, that which was comfortable for them, the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees, or would they choose Jesus Christ? Who will they ultimately follow? And he brings them to that place of of a decision. Now, as part of our uh, discussion last week, we overviewed the devilish deceit of hypocrisy. Because over and over in this chapter, of course, Jesus speaks to the leadership and calls them hypocrites. And so that brings us face to face with the discussion of hypocrisy. And so we looked at that last week, and uh, the message was a sobering message. The message was, in some senses, a discomforting message. And the reason that was true and is true is because we all can find instances of hypocrisy in our own lives. It doesn't take a lot to evaluate ourselves against the Word of God and to come to understand that hypocrisy is still even for the child of God, very much a real difficult issue. But as we approach the issue of hypocrisy, as we seek an ultimate answer to the issue of hypocrisy, uh, the answer is not to try to live a more perfect life, a a life in which there is no hypocrisy. That's not the ultimate answer because it would be impossible for you and I to root out all measures of hypocrisy in our own lives. And in fact, if that would be our approach, is what we need to do is just try harder, then ultimately what it would do is drive us deeper into hypocrisy. The ultimate answer for the sin of hypocrisy for me, for you, for the child of God, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to trust fully in the saving work of that one who came, who died, who rose again and conquered both sin and death on behalf of his people. Freedom from hypocrisy comes through the gospel. It is by grace and grace alone, not by our self-effort. 
So as we begin now to look in more earnest fashion here at chapter 23, I want to explore a a question with you this morning that arises in these early verses. And the question is simply this, does the hypocrisy of a church leader invalidate the truth of his or her message? Let me say it again. Does the hypocrisy of a church leader invalidate his or her message? If hypocrisy is is a fact of life for all, then the question becomes is, does the leadership which has hypocrisy in their life, does that then invalidate their message? Or a related question. What if we find ourselves in a situation where our leadership is ungodly? How do we relate to them? How do we relate to them? I've titled the message this morning, Relating to Ungodly Leadership. Relating to Ungodly Leadership. Now, this is not merely an an academic question this morning. This is, a, this is a reality that the believers have experienced and many believers have experienced throughout the centuries. Throughout the centuries. Sometimes the hypocrisy in the leadership, those that are in leadership in the church of God, is, is small and contained. Other times it is flagrant and devastatingly wicked. Sometimes uh, leadership actually ends up denying the very truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very message that they have preached. So how do we respond to that? What do we do in that sort of situation? Carol and I had an experience uh, many, many years ago whereby we learned uh, about a woman that had been very instrumental in Carol's early Christian life. That We later learned that uh, this uh, woman had... um, denied now the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures she had turned away from those things what do you make of that what were we to make of that did that change this this change of heart in this woman did that invalidate everything that she had taught carol in her early years as a follower of jesus christ those are the kind of questions that people have to ask themselves. Well, beloved, the answer is simply this. Hypocrisy does not invalidate the truth of God's word. The hypocrisy of the spokesperson does not invalidate the truth of the word of God. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Let God be found true. Though every man be found a liar. So we're in Matthew chapter 23 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. And in the process of doing that, Jesus is going to provide some direction for us when it comes to this vexing issue of relating to ungodly spiritual leadership. Now, building uh, on what Jesus has to say here in these three verses... I think there are uh, three guiding principles. So that's what I want to look at with you this morning. I think there are three guiding principles for the believer when it comes to the question of following ungodly leadership. Three guiding principles. The first is found in verses 1 and 2, and it is simply this. Those in leadership over us are to be listened to and obeyed to the extent that they accurately teach the scriptures. Those who are in leadership over us are to be listened to and obeyed to the extent that they actually or they accurately teach the scriptures. Verse 1, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, immediately we are thrust into an interpretive question that has generated several different opinions. And it matters how one approaches 
In particular, verse 2. The verb in verse 2, how it is translated, will, will um, unfold how one understands this passage. And the question that, that arises here is, uh, is whether Jesus is stating here, as it is uh, translated in the New American Standard that I'm reading from, is he stating that the scribes and the Pharisees have seized authority that is not rightfully theirs, They have seated themselves, the idea, right? They've seized an authority that is not rightly theirs. Is that what he is saying? Or, as it is translated in the English Standard Version, is he simply making a statement about the authority that they possess? That is, they sit in the chair of Moses or in the seat of Moses. Well, without um, getting lost in the, in the details here, I'll just tell you, I'm inclined to, to see the English Standard Version translation as the proper translation here. That Jesus is not accusing the scribes and the Pharisees of being usurpers of authority. I don't believe that's what he is saying. Instead, he is making a statement about their position in the nation of Israel. They sit in the seat of Moses. Now, in Israel, just a little background here. In Israel, the scribes were the learned men of the nation of Israel. They are those who had given their life to the study of the word of God. To the teaching of what they would call the law of Moses, the Torah. The Pharisees, and they numbered, uh, most estimate now, at about 6,000 total. So they weren't a large group. The Pharisees were those that had given their lives to living out the teaching of the scribes as it related to the law of Moses. So you have the teachers being the scribes. You have the Pharisees being those who attempted to live out the teaching of the scribes. Now, the word uh, Pharisees itself, it means separated ones. Those who had separated themselves in order to live out the teaching of the scribes. Now, not all Pharisees were scribes, but most scribes were Pharisees. So it's a, scribes are sort of a subset of the Pharisees. The Apostle Paul would have been a scribe. He would have been a scribe, one who had given himself not only to the living, but to the teaching of the law of Moses. They were the devoted religious class of the nation. They were the ones who taught and set the pattern for what it meant to follow Torah, to follow the law. And how they would do that is through the synagogue system. It was through the synagogue that the, that the teaching of the scribes and the, and the Pharisees would play itself out. There in the synagogues, the people would meet to worship. There in the synagogues, the people would meet to be instructed from the law of Moses. There in the synagogues would be the community life of the nation of Israel. So it was the synagogue was their place. And traditionally, in the synagogue, a teacher, rather than stand to teach, as is our tradition, would sit to teach. So the uh, teacher would typically sit at the front of the synagogue and would teach from Torah. And so the expression here is to teach, for the teacher, would be to sit in what they call the chair of Moses. So to sit in the chair of Moses means to be a teacher, an authoritative teacher to the nation of Israel. And it's called the chair of Moses because Moses was the one to whom the law of God originally came, right? It came to Moses. Furthermore, Moses was, under God's uh, Spirit's direction, the authoritative interpreter of the law that had come, in, had come to him. And I won't turn you there, but you can just mark it down and check it out. In Exodus chapter 18, verses 17 to 27, that's where Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, you remember? He came to him and he said, Moses, they're going to wear you out. The people are standing in line all day long waiting to, to get you to render some opinion, some verdict upon their, their, partic- their predicament and the law that God has given you. So appoint 70 elders, right? Let them handle the smaller cases. And if they can't figure it out, let them appeal to you because you are the final authoritative interpreter of the law that has come to you from God. So to sit in the chair of Moses, this is the big idea here, to sit in the chair of Moses is to act in the capacity as the authoritative spokesman for God. It is to be the authoritative spokesman for God. 
But the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of Israel, by this time had become corrupt. They were corrupt. They were adding to the law of Moses. They were perverting the law of God. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Every time he says, You heard that it was said, he is referring to the scribes and the Pharisees who had encrusted the law of God with their own human interpretations and additions. So he was contrasting himself with the truth of the law of God with how it had been encrusted by the teachers of the nation. In chapter 15 of Matthew's gospel, in verses 1 through 14, he says there that, that you, uh, you undermine, you invalidate the law of Moses, the law of God, by your traditions. There the question was about the Sabbath, you'll remember. And so here are the teachers of the nation. Here are the leaders of the nation. Here are those who speak authoritatively to the nation from God who have become a burden to the people. You remember in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says to the the nation there, he says, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest from what? Rest from trying to live up to the laws of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, verse 30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. It is light. So, they added to the law. They perverted the law. They had become a burden to the people. Here in chapter 23, verse 16, he calls them blind guides. Blind guides. Verse 15, he says that that those who follow them, if you were to follow them, they would lead you straight to hell. Now, in light of that, one would expect Jesus to tell the people to ignore them, wouldn't you think? Wouldn't it be sort of the the expectation that Jesus would say, he speaks to the crowds and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses, therefore ignore them. Because they pervert the law. They corrupt it. They encrust it. But he doesn't say that. Verse 3, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. All that they tell you, do and observe. Doesn't end there though, right? But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. You can sense the tension, can't you? You can sense the tension. He is at, he is at war with these men. And yet he says, all that they tell you, do and observe. Now, some commentators, uh, they try to relieve the obvious tension that is here by, by suggesting that Jesus is speaking sarcastically. He's saying, yeah, right, everything they tell you, do it, you know. But I don't think so. I don't, I don't think we can get out of it quite that easily. I think in light of the, of the reality that they are sitting in the seat of Moses, I think Jesus is making a very important and very profound statement. And what he is saying here is that to the extent the scribes and the Pharisees read and teach the law of Moses, they are to be obeyed. They are to be obeyed. To the extent they go beyond the law of Moses by adding their own regulations and, and hypocritical interpretations, they are not to be followed. Right? All that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. Do not follow them. Do not imitate them. In other words, even though they're hypocrites, even though they're blind guides, they are to be obeyed to the extent they are faithful to the word of God. Just don't pattern your life after them. Just don't pattern your life after them. Beloved, this is very much in keeping with what the Word of God says with regard to authority over his people. Very much what he has to say. God places authority structures into our lives for our good. And they are to be obeyed. 
And they are to be obeyed to the extent that they do not contradict the word of God. To the extent they do not contradict the word of God. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, right? The, the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the nation, the supreme council of the nation, tells Peter and John to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And, he, and they say to them, hey, if, whether you think it's right or wrong for, for us to be quiet, we're just telling you we're going to obey God and not man. We won't stop preaching the gospel. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, the, the Apostle Paul is, is being tried and, and, he is, and he is slapped contrary to the law. And he turns around and, and, he, and he speaks uh, for the Apostle Paul in probably the most strong way he can, criticizing it. Basically, you hypocrite, who, who uh, you're trying in me for the law, and you turn around a contradiction of the law, have me slapped? Who do you think you are? And someone says, you speak like that, do you revile the high priest? And, and Paul immediately is silent. And he says, the law says not to speak evil of your leader, even though your leader is evil. You're not to speak evil of him. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, right? And the apostle Paul there says that, that the governing authorities over us have been placed there by God for our good. That's an interesting way to talk about Nero. 1 Peter chapter 2. He speaks about those that are in leadership over us, that they are there by the will of God, and it is the will of God for us to submit to their leadership. You read the book of Judges, and those of you who are uh, following us in the, you know, the annual Through the Bible reading plan here at Foothill, it wasn't so long ago we finished the book of Judges, right? And what was the refrain we, we heard in the book of Judges particularly? In fact, it's the last verse of the book of Judges. Every man did what was, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. With no authority structure, you get the book of Judges. And it's not a pretty sight. So God puts authority structures in place for our good. And he puts people in place, in authority over us, who sometimes are very, very ungodly. Very ungodly. But they are to be obeyed. Unless and until they contradict the clear teaching of the Word of God. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) It means simply this. There is a lot of responsibility that falls to us as the people of God. As a child of God, we have responsibility. We cannot be lazy as the people of God. We cannot just follow a man unthinkingly, uncritically. Why? Well, it's simply this, because we follow Christ through his word. Not a man. Not tradition. We follow Christ. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we need to emulate the noble Bereans. You remember them? Acts chapter 17. Would you go to Acts chapter 17? Get familiar again with the noble Bereans, right? As a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you and I have a responsibility to emulate the noble Bereans. You remember the background here, Paul on his second missionary journey, he is in Thessalonica and he's only there a short time and a church is wonderfully planted there by the grace of God, but they drive him out of the city. They won't have anything to do with it. The crowds are stirred up and they, they run him out of town. Verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Verse 11, look how Luke Speaks of the Bereans here. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Well, in what way, Luke, were they more noble-minded than those who lived in Thessalonica? Answer, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They compared the message that the Apostle Paul was preaching, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Scriptures. 
Not once, but every time Paul opened his mouth, they had, as it were, a copy of the Torah there, and they were comparing what he had to say. Does it comport with the Word of God? And when it does, they believe. They believe. Now, I think what makes this uh, so astounding, I mean, it's astounding at many levels, but, but one of the things that makes it stand out for me is, is the fact that in those days, you know, everybody didn't have their own personal copy of the Word of God. You know that, right? They were on scrolls, and they were very, very expensive. And they were also somewhat hard to get. So it's not like every single Berean there had their own personal copy of the Old Testament and that they were, you know, comparing every word. They sit out there with their scrolls, you know, and comparing every word that Paul says. I think there's a couple things going on here. Number one is there's just a general statement of their commitment to the Scriptures. Beyond that, I think it's also saying that they are steeped in the Word of God. And so even though they might not have had a personal written copy of the Word of God, they knew the Word of God. And so as Paul referred to things, they were able to check it out in their own mind and say, eh, that's not the way it goes. That doesn't sound right. Or yes, that's exactly what the text must say. Beloved, how different from us. What a different time we live in. You all have your personal copy of the Word of God, right? Lift it up. Lift it up. Look around. Personal copy of the Word of God. Most of you are fortunate enough to have it leather-bound. Few of you, unfortunately, have to have it electronically. Someday you'll, you know, be able to have a real copy. (laughs) What a world we live in. What an opportunity we have. What a stewardship is ours. Our own personal copy of the words of the living God. Beloved, to whom much is given, you finish it. Much is required. Much is required. We need to be like the noble Bereans. We need to be comparing what we hear with what the Word says. We need to be steeped in the Word of God. So even if for some reason you don't get internet connection and you can't get it on your you know, cell phone, You still can remember what the Word of God says. As one uh, person said, we need to chew up the meat, spit out the bones when it comes to the teaching of the Word of God. As long as the leadership is teaching the Word of God, they are to be listened to and they are to be obeyed. It is when they are no longer accurately teaching the scriptures that all bets are off. That was principle number one. Principle number two. The ungodliness of our leaders does not invalidate their teaching. The ungodliness of our leaders does not invalidate their teaching. The reason for this is simply... The truth originates with God and not with man. Truth is not the product of the mind of man. Truth is what God has revealed to us in his living word. So to the extent someone teaches the word of God faithfully, to the extent someone reads the word of God faithfully, Faithfully, then they have communicated God's saving and sanctifying truth. Whether they believe it themselves, whether they heed it themselves, that's a secondary question. I think the greatest illustration of this profound reality has to be found in King Solomon. King Solomon, you remember him. According to the scriptures in 1 Kings 4, 
Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. Solomon taught, Solomon spoke under inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Word of God. The Word of God. Not once, not twice, 3,000, 4,005 times, you know, like a lot. A lot. People would come from far and wide to hear the wisdom of Solomon as he expressed the mind of Yahweh. And yet Solomon made a hash of his life. What a mess that man's life was. What a contradiction. What a hypocrisy to speak such wisdom and truth and to live your life in such open contradiction to the truth that you expressed. Does that mean you can tear the book of Proverbs out of your Bible and throw it away? Does that mean Ecclesiastes has nothing to say to us? Of course not. We'll let you in on a secret. We are all capable of speaking better than we do. Let me say it to you again. We are all capable of speaking better than we do. That's another way of saying that the seeds of hypocrisy lie in all of our hearts. Now, lest you think this is an apologetic to live like a hypocrite and it doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. How a leader lives their life is not irrelevant. It is not unimportant. It's just not the basis of truth. But the New Testament places significant emphasis upon the leadership of the local church, and I would say for that matter, upon all believers who are part of that local church to to live their lives in faithfulness to the scriptures which they proclaim. That is, without a doubt, the message of the New Testament. The message of redemption that we proclaim with our lips ought to be reflected in our lives. It ought to be. In fact, if one's life does not reflect the message of redemption in any way, one would begin to wonder whether that person was truly what? Redeemed. But the inconsistencies in and of themselves do not invalidate the message. Can't go to a church, it's full of hypocrites. Are you kidding me? Since when is that the measure of truth? The New Testament says uh, that the leadership of the local church is supposed to live a life that is a role model. Supposed to live a life that is a role model. It is to be an exemplary life. Not a perfect life, but an exemplary life. In fact, James says in James chapter 3 and verse 1, right? Let not many of you become teachers. Why? For you will incur a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. By the way, just to tie the bow around that, what is the primary role of an elder? It is to teach the word of God. It is to shepherd the flock by the teaching of the word of God. That's also, by the way, uh, why uh, Paul denies the eldership to women in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. He says directly there, women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. Chapter 3, elders are to teach and exercise authority over the church. James says, let not many of you become teachers. Let not many of you become elders. Let not many of you put yourself into this position Because understand, you will be evaluated by God in a very strict way. So it's a sobering thing. So should we follow 
people or not? As a Christian, should, should we follow people or not? Well, the answer to the question is yes. To the extent they follow Jesus Christ, then we should what? Follow them. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. To the extent someone is following Jesus Christ, then yes, pattern your life after. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, Be imitators of me, Paul says, just as I also am of Christ. To the extent that I'm following Christ, you can follow me. Well, how will you know whether I'm following Christ? You need to evaluate my life against the word of God. Titus chapter 2. Verse 7. Titus 2 and verse 7. Titus, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Show yourself to be an example. Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 15, Paul writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Take pains, Timothy. Take pains to follow Christ. Not just outwardly, not just vocally, but in your life. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. The writer of the Hebrews, he says to them, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Evaluate their life, and then imitate their faith. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 2, speaking of elders. He says, elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lottering, lotting, yeah, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but look at it, proving to be what? Examples to the flock. So over and over and over and over again, leadership is told that you are to follow Jesus Christ both outwardly and inwardly, both publicly and privately, so that your life can be a role model, not of a perfect person, but of a person who is striving after Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, it's, I think it's even explicit here, but in first, in first Peter, but, but certainly implicit in others that in order for a leader's life to be a role model, they need to be known by the people. Wouldn't you agree? They need to be known by the people and they need to be known by the people in more than one dimension. It's got to be more than what are they like behind the pulpit? That, by the way, I think is the, is the biggest single reason why internet preachers can never make full disciples. Can be used of God, powerfully used of God, as they, as they preach the truth of God, but they can never fully make a disciple. They can never fully carry out the commandments of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Because, why? Well, because they're nothing but bits and bites. They're not... Their theology is not enfleshed, is not incarnate among the people. You only know them in one dimension. 
Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, when the disciple is fully grown, they will be like their teacher. They will be like their teacher. That means life lived together. Life lived together. So, the first two principles, the question of following ungodly leadership. Number one, those in leadership over us are to be listened to and obeyed to the extent they accurately teach the scriptures. Second principle, the ungodliness of our leaders does not invalidate their teaching. Third, we must break from ungodly leadership when they stop teaching the scriptures. We must break from ungodly leadership when they stop teaching the scriptures. This third principle here, I think it naturally uh, stems from the discussion back here in Matthew chapter 23. So I'll direct you back there. There may be a time when we must separate ourselves from ungodly leadership. A time when we must separate ourselves from those who would destroy us. Now, that's not an easy decision. It is not a simple decision. Many believers have had to wrestle with this decision, particularly when it comes to their involvement in a local church. When is it okay to leave a local church? When is it okay? On what basis do I make such a decision? On what basis is it okay to walk away? Or for others who have been part of a, of a denomination that is sliding towards apostasy, at what point do I separate myself from this denomination? Not an easy question. Not an easy question. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, Paul commands that believers are not to be bound together with unbelievers, right? You know that one. They're not to be in partnership with those committed to the destruction of God's truth. And we normally, we read that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we say that it talks about being unequally yoked in marriage, right? Isn't that the classic passage? Don't be unequally yoked. If you are a believer, you have no business marrying an unbeliever. And then we take it a step further and we say, wisdom says that if you're not to marry an unbeliever, then it's a foolish thing to date an unbeliever. And I think that's all a legitimate application of that truth. But that is not what that passage is talking about. That is not a passage written by the Apostle Paul for advice on finding a marriage partner. What he is talking about is separating oneself from apostasy. And he says to the believer in verse 17 there in, at Corinth, he says, they are to come out from among them and not touch what is unclean. Come out from among them and do not touch what is unclean. He is speaking to the Corinthians who are in danger of, of the gospel being overwhelmed by the false teachers that they're giving an ear to there in Corinth. So at what point, question, at what point must a Christian separate themselves? Come out from among them. Do not touch what is unclean. That's not a suggestion. That's not a saying, you know, it'd probably be a good idea maybe if you were to think of going to another church. Or, or maybe you really shouldn't be part of this denomination anymore that is now denying, right, fundamental Christian truth. I think Jesus here in Matthew 23 gives us the hint, the hint to, to answer the question. When must you come out from among them? Answer, when they stop preaching and teaching the word of God. When they stop preaching and teaching the word of God. When they stop reading the word of God. In other words, when the gospel can no longer be found, when the gospel can no longer be found, it is time for you to leave. And in fact, it's not an option anymore. You must 
leave. When the gospel cannot be found, you must leave. Beloved, different individuals will come to a different conclusion as to when that time is. And we need to be patient. Some people will have a greater tolerance, a greater hope, a greater desire to, to stay and, and, and perhaps to see things turn around. Others will conclude it's gone. Like the Old Testament of old, the, the Spirit of God has left the place. Oh, the ritual is still happening. But there's no one there in the Holy of Holies. The Spirit is disparted because the gospel has been snuffed out. But before that day is reached, before the candlestick is removed, the child of God is incumbent upon the child of God to, to pray and to do everything they can to fan the, the flicker of flame back to a robust life. And different people will have different opinion on where that place is and when they've reached it, what their tolerance is. We can't just lay down the one rule that fits everybody. I mean, there is the, there is the rule, yes, that when the gospel is gone, you need to be gone. But where that plays itself out exactly we need to leave room for human conscience, guided by the Spirit of God. These are serious things, beloved. Some of you are here and come from denominational churches. Come out of that background. You know the pain, what it means to leave it behind. Others of you have come from churches where you have concluded that the gospel can no longer be found. Just understand, when, when you arrive at that decision, you have come to a very serious place. Be careful. Be slow. Be patient. Be spirit-led. Before you conclude, you must leave. You must leave a church. It is no small decision. May God give us grace and wisdom to make it well. Maybe you're here this morning... And you're not part of any church. Well, you may be, uh, you know, on a membership role and that sort of thing. But, but I'm talking about really part of a church. Meaning that you are a child of God. That the Spirit of God has taken up residence within you as you have placed your full faith and trust in the, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit has baptized you into a local assembly. You're part of that church. Maybe you're not, though. Maybe you, maybe you are here and, and, you, and you just, you're kind of outwardly attached, but, but inwardly you're not. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we were talking about that passage just before that. In chapter 5, in verse 21, Paul says that he, God made he who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Basically what Paul says is, is that God has placed upon Jesus Christ the entire weight of the guilt of our sin and credited the righteousness of Christ to our account that we might live with our creator in peace and harmony when we trust in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 6, Paul says that we need to call out to Christ, and, and today is the day. Now is the appointed time, Paul says. And that's what I say to you. If you're here this morning, and you haven't trusted Christ, if you have not called out to Christ to save you, if you, if you are not believing that you were saved by grace and grace alone and not by any work that you could add, you cannot improve your standing up before God in any way, you now come to that realization, then today is the day of salvation for you. You need to call out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do it right where you are. See, that's the beauty of it. There's nothing you have to do. There's no ritual you have to perform. There's no religious activity that you must become part of. 
right there, right now, in the quiet of your own heart, between you and God, even with your eyes wide open, you can say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I realize that reality. That I have rebelled against the law of God. I have broken the commandments in thought, word, and deed. And I deserve the punishment that's been set aside for those who break the law. But I believe, Jesus, that you came and died for me. I believe the message of Easter, that that on that cross, when you said it is finished, that indeed it is finished. There's nothing more that I can do. There's nothing more I must do. That you have done it all. That your death is sufficient to take the wrath of God for me. And I love you. And I want to follow you. Please save me. Make me your child. If you call out to God in that way, God delights in hearing those kinds of prayers. May the grace of God be at work in you today. Father, thank you for our time in the Word of God. Thank you for our personal copies of the Word of God that we have access to us to, through the Scriptures to the mind of God. That you have revealed to us through your Word everything necessary for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ that comes only through His Word. Our Father, may you help us to be people of the book. May you enable us to be diligent in the word of God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. May you help us to become so saturated with, so familiar with the gospel that we can spot a counterfeit from 100 miles away. And Lord, may you work in us that our lives would be transformed and conformed to that image of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, how the hypocrisy of our heart troubles our soul. We want to be free. We want to live for Christ with nothing hidden, nothing held back. Do your good work in us, Father. Draw us to yourself. Help us to realize it is our direction, not our perfection, in which we find our comfort. And Father, finally, for those who are without Christ this morning, who need to call out to the Savior, may they call out even now. May today be their day of salvation. Oh God, be merciful to them as you've been merciful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.